Today's episode is on data and governance. I'm here with my co-host Tui Gilling. Tēnā koe Tui. Tēnā koe Kingi. E tokorua ngā kaikōrero i te rā nei. We're here with Dr. Tahu Kukutai, who specializes in Māori and Indigenous population research and leads the NIDEA research program Te Para One e Tu Mai Nei, Māori and Indigenous Futures, who research spans a broad range of population topics from iwi tribal demography and Indigenous data sovereignty. Kioni Mahilona is a native Hawaiian born and raised on the island of Kauai. Kioni is a graduate of Olin College of Engineering, worked on driverless cars with MIT, and went to New Zealand on a Fulbright scholarship. At Tehiku, Kioni led the development of the first Te Reo Māori speech recognition and speech synthesis system and is progressing a kaitiaki tanga license for data and intellectual property. Tēnā kōrua. Aloha. Tēnā kōrua. Kia ora. So, no hea koe, Dr. Tahu. Oh, so he 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 uri ahau no uh, Ngāti Tipa, Ngāti Kanohaku, Ngāti Mahanga me te Okauri. Uh, tēnā koe. Uh, kia ora, kia ora, a little bit of background. No hea koe. Hey, aloha kākou. Uh, uh, o Kalalea Kaumauna, o Anahola Kauahapua, uh, o Mahelona Kau Inoa, uh, o Kau Whānau. Now I'm jumping into today Māori. <laughs> um, um, I'm from the island of Kauai uh, in Hawaii. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Kauai, um, you might have seen it in the uh, Hollywood programs, Lost Tropic Thunder, uh, 40 Days and 40 Nights, or in the news with regards to um, Mark Zuckerberg trying to take land away from uh, Native Hawaiians. So yeah, kia ora. Kia ora. So a first part I for today is what is data? Well, that's a really good question, you know, because sometimes we, we take for granted um, the, that everybody knows what we're talking about when we're talking about it, but that's not always the case. So I guess there's no one sort of definition of data, but I think about the way we use it in Te Manararunga, which is the Māori Data Sovereignty Network. And so we talk about data as kind of information or, or knowledge that is digital or digitizable. So, and then Māori data is, is data that comes um, from Māori, uh, from our language, from our culture, from our resources, from our taiao, and that um, and it can come from us or be about us. And, and so that's an incredibly sort of diverse range of different types of data. And it can be sort of born digital, like born on born on our phones, mm. that's digital data, or coming from CCTV, that's digital data, or it can be made digital. So, um, so for example, I'm, I'm doing a sort of a big data repatriation project with Ngati Tipa, and we're focusing on um, building a database about our tupuna and our whakapapa and our whenua. And so we're identifying a whole lot of information that sits in public repositories in hard form, like it could be archives, um, and then we're digitising that, so we're making it digital. And, you know, there's, a, there's a, quite often a complex process about that sort of uh, process of transmitting that knowledge. So if I think about Native Land Court records, for example, and we've got our tūpuna in there who are giving testimony in sort of 1868, and this is when we're getting our land back in the compensation court, 
and then transmitting their intergenerational mātauranga about their whakapapa connections and their connection to the whenua. It's filtered through the knowledge lens of the Pākehā courts. It's recorded by Pākehā scribes. And then we take it, you know, a hundred and plus years later, digitise it, combine it with our mātauranga. And so the, 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 the whakapapa of the data is rich and complex. Um, so, and, and that's the kind of universe, that's the sort of data universe um, mm. that we inhabit. Yeah, no, that was that was a great definition. Um, I mean, I I I always generalize a bit, and and I mean, I mean, the distinction that that Tahu made, you know, that around it being uh, digital, I guess, knowledge. Um, whereas I kind of often just think of data as pretty much everything, or, or knowledge in general. But um, but it is important to notice the, the distinction between them, and and I guess because with that, right, you have different sort of risks. Um, and different methods of transmission of, of knowledge, and so when I guess I guess in this context when we speak about data, it's really around the digital aspects in terms of how how we transmit, how we share, and what are the risks in digitizing um, our knowledge, um, uh, for, you know, for our communities, being indigenous communities or minority communities, and yeah, so. Oh, tēnā kōrua, tui. Um, how do you think the future of our data should be managed? Uh, that's a yeah, it's a loaded question. It's a hard one. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I, I can just speak to to what we try to do, you know, at, at Tehiku. Um, you know, having having sovereignty over um, not just the data, but the platforms that house the data is really important mm-hmm. for all sorts of reasons. I mean, for so practical reasons, for economic reasons, and obviously for um, you know, data sovereignty reasons. And, um, and, you know, interesting, you know, with the COVID-19, right, um, you heard, actually heard the prime minister specifically say that we need to be where our citizens are. And she then told us that her citizens or our citizens of this country are in Facebook's platform. You know, it's a foreign uh, owned corporate in America. Um, they, like most sort of big tech, uh, they pay very little taxes in this country because, well, they do what any business would do that has to return profits to shareholders as they ensure they have high profits. And that means avoiding um, uh, paying taxes where possible. And it, and it was concerning that, well, I mean, we always, we, we always knew this, but I mean, really to hear it coming from the prime minister's mouth that, that the citizens of this country actually aren't really in this country. Um, if you think about it in terms of our digital lives, we're actually... In, in a platform that's owned, um, you know, by someone who, who, as I sort of mentioned earlier, um, doesn't really have a good understanding of, of anything indigenous in, in, in that he was willing to force the sale of, of native Hawaiian land. Um, and, and I think what we've learned at Tahiku in this process is that our community, you know, we don't have millions of, of, of viewers and audiences and users. Um, you know, we, we cater to Northland, to Taitokero. At most, you know, we'll say there's 100,000 um, people who might be our potential audience. Uh, what's important is that we are providing access to the, the data that they, or the content that, that they find important. And if they know we're doing that, they will, they will come to our whare because they know they can access that data in our whare. And, and you look at, um, you know, there's the Netflix, right, and Amazon Prime and now Apple Plus. 
And, and if anything, they're, they're validating what we're doing, right? What they're saying is that if we create content people want, they will come to our platforms as long as we can make the data or the content accessible for people and it's something that they they value then they will our people will go where they need to go right they will come to our party um if 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 they need to or or if they want to and i think that's that's really important because and and we actually have the data to back that up in terms of um sort of retained viewership based you know when we put our content on facebook compared to when we put it in our own party and i and i think that's really empowering because because to hear the prime minister say oh well our people are you know on facebook we have to go there is sort of i mean you know that's that's not where i want us to be in the future to in terms of data i want us even as a country to say no hold on if we can make a place if we can be a place people want to live not just in the real world but digitally right we always have this quoted about new zealand being this great place everybody wants to live well if online we can be a great place people want to live that we don't have to worry about having to go to a foreign corporate who only cares about profits to the 1% uh, to reach our people we can actually reach our people in our in our own sort of on our own platforms in our, in our own domain tahu did you have any fakado yeah no i mean, i'd really strongly totable uh, what you near said and what's so important i think about the example of of how tihiku was kind of realizing data sovereignty um, by design actually over taonga data which is you know a data around Gideon Māori and in Māpauranga uh, that belongs to the people. And they're doing it in a way which is very sort of considered and, and but and making it accessible to the to the people to whom it belongs. Um, and you know, and that's a real model. Uh, it's a model of what data sovereignty looks like in a practical sense. Um, for me, you know, I guess I, I work with a lot of big data sets that come you know, which we all contribute to as individuals, as whānau, as households, as iwi, but um, but often we have been um, distanced from the control or having any authority or mana over that data. And so it kind of sits within repositories that are controlled by crown agencies. And the only way in to exercise any sort of our inherent rights and interests over our data resources is through very sort of often very sort of watered down consultative mechanisms, um, which you know, kind of position us more as a stakeholder rather than a, a treaty partner. Um, and there's a whole series of you know problems with that. And so, so I think if we're talking about um, sort of data sovereignty per se, I think there's real limits to the extent to which that can ever be effectively realised within the colonial settler state structures which are controlled by crown agencies. I, you know, I think, I'm just, just being pragmatic about it. I think there's, there's real limits to it. Um, because we know if we kind of look back through the history of Māori policy, um, that there's been real limits to affecting any, realising any sort of self-determination in a system which fundamentally refuses to sort of recognise it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether that's in education, whether that's in health, whether that's in sort of economic activity. So why would data be any different? I think what we can actually aim for, though, is a very strong, the strongest form of um, data governance mm. um, based on a set of principles um, which are transparent, uh, which has accountability built into it, which provides clear pathways to collective benefit. So it's not an extractive relationship, but one which is, flows both ways. Um, and so, I, you know, I think there's a lot of potential for having uh, Māori, iwi, 
Hapu community data governance over resources which are effectively sitting in somebody else's sort of backyard, even though it's our data. Mm. Um, I, but then, but how do we realise data sovereignty in our own data ecosystems? Mm. And what is the role of policy and what is the role of government mm. in making proactive, sustainable investments in that data infrastructure for community-controlled, however you want to define community, for community-controlled data infrastructure that mitigates risks, that increases benefits, that meets the needs of the communities. Like, to me, that's just smart data design. Um, and that's where, you know, so instead of, instead of investing ever more funds into a centralised, top-down, centrally controlled um, data system, there's a lot more scope there for a more uh, investment in a more distributed system uh, that res- you know that helps to support authority mana over the data in the places mm. where it resides. Mm. Um, and but uh, communities don't wait around usually for governments to give them permission to do this, and so they do it themselves anyway. Yeah, you know, we do it ourselves anyway in our own ways. Um, but there is a missed opportunity. Um, a strategic investment is not carried out in a way that would actually enable those systems to be um, to work even better. Um, yeah, so I mean, to, so my my own personal view is that I, I don't think data sovereignty can really be realised uh, within government structures, um, but I think there's a huge amount of potential and capacity for it to be exercised in communities. We're already doing that in various ways. I think Dehiku is a wonderful example. Um, but there's opportunity to do, to do a lot more of it. And I think where we have our real advantage, we can't be a Facebook. We wouldn't want to be a Facebook. It's such a extract, you know, it's such an extractive sort of model is for us to have clarity about what is the sort of data we care about. You know, what's the sort of data we want to protect? Uh, what's the sort of data if it doesn't exist that we want to collect? Mm-hmm. Now, what's that what do we what and this will vary from community to community, although I've got to say, fucker papa, I think crosscuts most communities. You know, that and the power of relatedness and the knowledge about relatedness uh, permeates all of our all of our communities, I think. So yeah, to me, fucker papa is that real time with data that we all have an interest in. And we need to know ourselves better than anybody else. And we have a decent shot at controlling that data. Mm. I mean, Facebook could probably develop algorithms to try and identify communities of relatedness. And who knows, they may already be doing that. They can, they can tell um, when you're in a relationship with someone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, we have, and again, it goes back to the, us being our own kind of sources of knowledge um, and collective intelligence and mātauranga and kind of knowing what our strengths are and what we can work with and how we can leverage those strengths to really uh, protect and steward um, the data that means a lot to us. Because there'll be all sorts of other stuff that we won't really have much of a chance of controlling, mm. um, you know, because that's just the sort of reality of the situation when you're dealing with powerful players. But there's other sorts where we actually do have a decent shot mm. at, at uh, kind of controlling according to the tikanga and the kawa um, that, that our communities are, are comfortable with. Mm. Um, but, we, but we need government investment in that, I think. And we have that right as treaty partners. Mm, kia ora. I wanted to touch on the idea of developers engineers pursuing the the path to create their own and then they're confronted with a technological barrier a a lot of system design and build needs to happen and that can be a a little bit scary or a little bit inhibiting 
if you have to develop your own servers, your own server farms, your own infrastructure, your own load balancing system. So I'm curious as to possible approaches that some of our development community may have out there to uh, develop their own, or are there ways that they can use existing infrastructure such as Amazon Web Services or Google Firebase to, to get something up? Do you have any thoughts and ideas on that? Like just looking, for example, at the government tracer app, you know, they've built that on a number of existing technologies mm. um, and most people do, but I'm just curious about the pathway for some of our whānau out there who are starting a development company and looking at their options to both see it as a taonga and get something built. Mm. Mm. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I can speak to how, how we do things at Tehiku. Um, you know, it's there's like there's this weird there's like a trade-off between um, you know how much sovereignty I want to exert over my platforms and data, and how privileged I am really. Because um, if we could, we would build our own server farm in Northland, right, um, and not use AWS. That would cost a lot of money. We'd need uh, a particular uh, skill set, um, you know, of people to to sort of run that. It'd need to be sustainable economically. Um, so it's probably impractical and, and obviously we don't have that sort of resources. Um, but we, and we actually do use, uh, Amazon web services, uh, because it's, I mean, compared to some of the other services, it's, it's relatively affordable. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to use. So it's actually efficient and it helps us to achieve what we, what we need to achieve in terms of our organization. Um, I guess the, the key is really making sure, um, I don't want to say read the terms and conditions because you can spend a whole lifetime doing that. I think if you if you have a higher level understanding of of um, you know the risks of, or, or or the value of the data that you're working with, then then you then you can determine whether you do need to go and read the terms and conditions. Mm. And so, you know, for example, uh, you know, we store store all of our content, all of our Talna in S3. Um, we know Amazon's uh, very secure. It's it's highly redundant, which means the chances of our data there going away is is 0.000001%. Um, and and also we know Amazon's not reading it because that's that's like you um, you know sort of locking something in a safe at a bank, right? And the bank going in and prying in and seeing what you do. It's just, I mean, it's one of those sort of trusts like. When you're driving in the road, you trust everyone stops at the red light, right? That's how society works within there's certain rules. And so in the sense of us paying for a service, actually paying to store our stuff somewhere, there's this inherent trust that they're not using it. Of course, then you get the sort of wheels turning in your brain. You're like, mm, I should go and read it. And, and actually, I have recently read uh, Google's G Suite's terms and conditions uh, to ensure they're not reading all the data we're putting in. Um, uh, 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 Google Drive, it wasn't actually clear, and I've since uh, sent someone there an email, um, haven't heard back from them. But if you look at their terms and conditions uh, for their free services, it's explicitly clear that um, any, any content you put in Google's platform uh, can be, um, uh, Google is allowed to make derived works from that content and, and use it to improve their services or sell things. So, yeah. so for example, if I put my audio data into one of Google's three things, be it, um, you know, putting me having a quarter on YouTube, 
Google is allowed to take that uh, attempt to transcribe it, um, use that data to go and improve its transcription services, which it then actually sells to people like us who want to go and build apps that can use their transcriptions things. And, and, that's, and that's been a key, especially with our, our Papareo project, um, is actually maintaining the sovereignty over, over our Areo. And in this case, it's maintaining the sovereignty over the speech tools, whether it's speech recognition, speech synthesis, or language processing. And so actually, if you're a developer and you want to go and use uh, Google's um, API for speech recognition, they offer two tiers. One is the affordable one, which means they're allowed to actually use the data that you're providing them and go and use it to improve their services. Or you can pay a little bit more money and they won't actually uh, use your data that you're, you're streaming. And the thing is, that's you as a developer using their services. So if you're then providing a service to your end users, you have to make sure you communicate that to them clearly, right? Because mm -hmm. they're just seeing they're just seeing you, but not understanding that there's a whole network or a platform behind you that you're using that actually has its own own rules that might govern um, the data of your end users. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Tahu, yeah. any corridor on that? I just I think that the, the point that you and you made about um, kind of making informed decisions about trade offs, mm. um, and and you know. The, the putia is not endless. Usually it's quite shallow and you have to be very creative with a small yeah. amount of money that you have to do the job that you want to do. And so that does involve using tools that are publicly available or freely available or using services that won't cost 10 times as much as the ideal. Um, and, and I, you know, there's no one right way um, of approaching that. Um, but, but, I, but for me, the important point is that our, our communities are able to participate equitably in that decision-making so that they're, they're the ones who are in the position of saying, actually, you know, I, I understand what the costs and benefits are of the range of options. We're going to go with this one because we believe that, you know, the trade-offs will not be that great and it's going to deliver us a lot of benefits. Mm. What's happened, though, historically, and still going on now at the moment, is that we're not in that position to make those decisions to be the ones who are determining what happens to our data, where it gets stored, how it gets managed, who the benefits flow to and what the benefits look like. Um, so the more examples that we can have of what good practice looks like working in our collective interests, you know, because so much of the data environment is all about the protection and realisation of personal data rights and interests. But, from, you know, for the most part in Te Ao Māori and Indigenous other indigenous worlds, it's the collective. The collective is actually at the forefront. You know, uh, Te Reo Māori is a, is a collective taonga. It doesn't belong to any one individual. Same with whakapapa. So, uh, you know, kind of recalibrating those systems so that it comes with a fundamentally different lens and then being, uh, being in a position to make those decisions that reflect our own priorities um, is really important. And I do think there's a role for government and policy to play in this to enable those systems to flourish. Um, and, you know, in a sort of, in an era of digitalization where we sort of, there's a lot of self-congratulatory sort of activity around being innovative and thinking differently and outside the box, how, how much outside the box is Aotearoa really prepared to think? Because we have, we have a whole different knowledge system in this country, which has been under-recognized and underutilized and under-resourced. <laughs> 
And in the last couple of years, have you seen Māori communities' comfort in using tech? Um, is it has it been? Is there a more comfort now than there was like a couple of years ago? I mean, you, you know, like even during COVID, I you know, I, there's people just going and doing karaoke on Facebook Live. I mean, you know, you didn't really see that a few years ago. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, they must be comfortable, um, you know, in the sense of putting themselves out out there, but also in their ability to to easily. Um, I guess use these these platforms. I, I mean, I I actually I feel like you know we're a minority of minorities. You know, when we're when we're actually in this position of saying, making you know decisions around data sovereignty and, and what we do, I I don't feel um, you know back in Hawaii I, I don't feel many people. I mean, the majority of Hawaiians are thinking like that, right? It's I mean, unfortunately we're thinking about other things like how are we going to feed our whānau, right? Um, mm those sorts of things. And, you know, that go, again goes back to the, the idea around, around privilege is that we actually not, most of our people aren't in a place where they can um, feel comfortable to make uh, an informed decision around what digital platforms they're using because, you know, their, their thing is just, uh, is more around what's the necessities for their life and their whānau. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think one other thing that sometimes gets lost is that um, it's not sort of data sovereignty for data's sake. Um, and, you know, in, in te mana rara, no, it's, it's always really clear that it's, it's around data for self-determination um, and it's data for well-being. It's not just data because we love data. I mean, we love data, but that's, that's one small part of the, the broader um, kaupapa, really, which is data to, um, you know, protect what we hold dear to uh, to enable uh, whānau and communities to live self-determining lives, whatever that looks like, whatever they value. And so it's an, it's data in aid of, not data for its own sake. Mm. Um, and, you know, when you think about all the different ways that, for example, government uses data, for public policy, for the, re for the redistribution of um, services, for the whole narrative and, and focus on data-driven and evidence-informed decision-making, mm -hmm. that all relies on data in some form. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of that is, you know, kind of there's a bit of a hyperbole that accompanies that, but there's also um, some, some truth in that and that data can actually be incredibly useful and can generate insights that can help inform our own internal decision-making and expression of mana motuhake. Uh, so, 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 you know, data is a tool for us to use, but it's also a resource for us that we might want to protect. It has these multiple faces. It has these multiple faces, but at the heart of it really has to be around, um, well, for me, it's really about our people uh, and also our, our, our people and our environment and our treasures. Mm. Kia ora, I wanted to touch on that. Uh, the census allows the government to understand who our country is and uh, who our people are, where they live, what their age is. And I have some questions around uh, Māori contribution in the census. I know there's been a bit of corridor. I was wondering if, uh, Tahu, you could outline some of the take that's been discussed at Manararaunga with the last census and how that may impact our hokainga and our whānau. Yeah, I, I mean... There were a whole lot of complex dimensions to the 2018 census, but I mean, the main thing is that, that because of the way that it was rolled out, it missed a huge proportion of um, 
Māori and Pacific communities. So, you know, the individual response rate was less than 70%. Like, that's sort of unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a whole lot of consequences of that. Um, but the main, there were two cu- couple of main ones. One was that in order to kind of plug that big gap, that gaping gap of missing people in the census, because, you know, the one, the one job of the census, and this is what makes it different from a survey, is you've got to count everyone. Mm-hmm. That's what a census is. It's mm-hmm. literally a national head count. So when you've got 30% of your heads missing, um, momo, it can't, it's unusable. So you've got to figure a way of how to put those heads back in there. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's basically the, the position that sets NZ found themselves in. And so what they did was turn to the use of alternative government data sources to put people back into the census data file. Now, one of the problems Timana Raranga had with that is that you're kind of exercising a high degree of kind of social license. Absolutely. Yeah, assuming that the cut, because it's legal, um, but is it, you know, the the questions that Timana Raranga was asking was, is it ethical? How does that sit alongside um, Māori data sovereignty? And where's the, given that Māori and Pacific peoples as well were disproportionately affected by this change in methodology, where are we in the decision making or somebody else making it and then kind of creating our data for us so there's a whole lot of a lot of the sort of issues around data sovereignty sort of were really crystallized in this context of a new of what happened with 2018 census and a new methodology so that kind of um, played out and Tiamana Rarang was very very vocal um, in a way that and in a way actually it was interesting because they kind of asked a lot of questions that the rest of the New Zealand sort of public wanted to answer you know, wanted to ask as well, but asked it in a different way. Um, and so, so the whole bunch of things that went on, one of the things that couldn't be fixed, so there are lots of kind of use of alternative data, but one data that couldn't be resolved, issue that couldn't be resolved by using other government data sets was iwi data. Um, and the census is the only official sort of data set that collects consistently iwi data and it produces the iwi census profiles and then also kind of micro data that you might use, that iwi might use to understand other things like employment changes and educational transitions and so forth. So that was lost, basically. And it was lost because um, iwi identifying, iwi affiliation data is not reliably collected across other government agencies of the census, apart from education, and even that has its limitations. So the census, there's been high level of dependency on the census as the kind of the single provider of official data about iwi. And so what that showed was that there's system weaknesses um, and there's, there's real risks with having an over-reliance on a single source, uh, particularly when there's not a lot of decision-making power. So um, Stats NZ has signed this Mana Oriti Agreement with the Data ILG, which is the data group for the Chiwi Iwi Chairs Forum. Um, and that's basically trying to set in place a relationship that gives uh, a lot more sort of authority for iwi over decisions uh, affecting iwi data. Um, but what that also showed as well is that probably that there's a need for alternative thinking, mm. alternative systems. Um, when we think about our own iwi registers, for example, conceptually, it's very different from self-identification on a census form uh, on the day, you know. You might just say, oh, yes, I'm, I'm Waikato and I'm Maniapoto and there's no validation. It's just kind of you just fill out your form or someone fills it, fills it out for you. Um, conceptually, the way in which you belong and the way in which you're validated and recognised by others as belonging is through whakapapa on iwi registers. Mm. 
Mm. And so their iwi register is really, to me, it's, it's, the, it's, the, um, it's the sort of the tuturu. If we talk about population frames, the taonga that the, the iwi entities have is they have their own registers and they're defining who their people are through um, criteria that, that are broadly accepted by the uri. So why can't those registers and other iwi information systems form the basis of a different way of collecting and generating iwi data um, that better reflects our concepts of who we are um, and which puts the data in, in a much closer proximity of um, iwi decision makers, if you like. So that was kind of a roundabout way of saying, you know, there were a lot of problems with the 2018 census, but it also created, I think, some opportunities for a different way of thinking about it. I'm wondering about the protections that are in place for iwi organisations if they decide to share their database with the government to help build a fuller census. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't sort of presume to tell iwi decision makers what they should do. Mm. Um, but but I, 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 you know, I guess there's a couple of principles there. Um, one is that in order to sort of retain that sovereignty over your data, you really want to be the ones who, and I think the First Nations uh, people really sort of pioneered this and have sort of nailed it through their principles of OCAP, which are trademark, and they've been doing this for 20 years. They're like the original data sovereignty warriors, you know, a bunch of aunties from the First Nations. Um, and, they, and their OCAP principles are around uh, ownership, control, access, and possession. So they don't hand over their data. If people want to use their data for research purposes or policy purposes, um, they come to them uh, and, and, and First Nations have their own tikanga and kawa, which have been worked out with their communities, and they make the decisions on whether their data can be accessed by third parties for what purposes. And then that decision doesn't just get made centrally. The community who have an interest in it, whose data it is, they have a say on whether they think it can be used in that way. And I think... You know, in a way that kind of sits much more comfortably um, with our people than just kind of handing over a data set to the government. You, you want to know, well, why would you do that? Is there, old, is there an alternative? Mm -hmm. what, are the, what are the benefits you think you're going to get by doing that? Can we get that same benefit doing another way which doesn't require us to hand it over? Mm -hmm. And also understanding what handing it over means. I mean, uh, when I think about some of the models in the US where they're linking uh, kind of federal health data with tribal data, but the data doesn't go to the federal government, it sits in this third space. So it gets linked in an independent third space. And then the governance around that is from the tribes and the accountability is to the tribes. So you're bringing two systems together, but you're not just handing it over. So there's a whole range of ways in which we might realise better value and better meet our needs that don't involve taking the data that we have and just giving it over. I think that wouldn't be my first go-to. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, in, in the case of the census, right, they might just want specific augmentations of that data, right, or some statistics about it, right? So you might you might sort of do some churning of the data and output something, and you might just share that with them, right? Where in that, you know, in the case of you know anonymized data, right? That's something that's common, where you're just sort of looking at broad population statistics, as opposed to actually getting the individual data on each and every UE member. Um, Tahu, are you able to explain a little bit about where data sits with the rights of Indigenous peoples in the international context? Yeah, 
and how that actually also provides protection? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, I guess from from the sort of early days of uh, data sovereignty, and this is not so much FNIGC, the First Nations people who really started down this track 20 years ago, uh, but more kind of recent iterations in Aotearoa, also Australia, uh, in the US and in Scandinavia, um, right from the, be the beginning stages, there was a really close link uh, between the articulation of data sovereignty and the UN DRIP. So the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, there's multiple articles there which align around self-determination um, and uh, control of resources, um, free prior and informed consent. So there's a number of articles in that really long uh, UN DRIP document which um, both kind of provide a platform for the expression of, of data sovereignty and also protect um, uh, self-determination you know, self rights and interests over resources, which includes data resources. So there's a really clear and obvious alignment between um, the rights and interests expressed in, in the concept of data sovereignty and the UN DRIP. Um, more recently, there's been uh, an increasing sort of recognition of data sovereignty and other global sort of human rights instruments. Um, there's the UN Rapporteur on the Rights of Privacy. Um, and so he's been very interested in what Indigenous concepts of privacy mean because and what they look like and how they can be protected because, you know, like I said before, most of the uh, regulatory frameworks around data privacy are very much in that individual personal data mode and they don't serve Indigenous peoples well. So uh, he's had a couple of uh, documents which have explicitly recognised and uh, and, um, and uh, encouraged governments to recognise Indigenous data sovereignty. One of them is in the Big Data Open Data Consultation document. Another one is on the draft uh, recommendations and framework for the use of, of health and health-related data. Mm. Um, so, so that's the, the UN Rapporteur on the Rights to Privacy. So it's interesting these different places where data sovereignty is being recognised. Also, the Open uh, Data Movement, which is the Open Data Charter, have moved to also uh, recognise the rights and the concerns of Indigenous peoples around, so just simply making everything open, um, <laughs> you know, it's, that's kind of, that doesn't necessarily sit well um, and it doesn't meet the needs of um, sort of Indigenous communities. And so there's been a really interesting and um, productive dialogue with the open data sort of movement around how can you make data open that needs to be, but also recognise the rights of Indigenous peoples to have control over their own data. So there's been some interesting stuff happening in the in the international and more recently with the Research Data Alliance, which is a very um, influential global network of researchers who are also in that sort of open data space. They're funded by the European Union um, and also the NSF in the US and a few other kind of major institutions. They've been producing guidelines and recommendations for the use of data in COVID-19 and um, they've moved really quickly. They're on their fourth version for the fifth one uh, the Indigenous Data, the Global Indigenous Data Alliance, which is the network of networks of data sovereignty networks, have come in and said, you need to have Indigenous data sovereignty principles and recognition and these global guidelines around how you should use data for COVID-19. So the fifth iteration will include recommendations and guidelines relating to Indigenous data sovereignty. So increasingly, in these kind of international places, there's been a growing recognition of the cross-national importance of data sovereignty, not just in particular countries. Yeah. 
But it also comes down to whether it's enforceable, right, or, or whether these countries actually listen to the UN. And that's, I mean, that's right. It's that's not a problem, has it? No, you're right. These are human rights instruments are, um, are largely not enforceable, mm. uh, but they do provide a point of pressure. Um, and you know, and it's also been able to kind of connect the dots. I mean, really, what here we've got the privacy legislation bill that still has been kind of winding its way through. Also, a review of the Stats Act. Um, so, to, you know, to some extent, those kind of legal mechanisms, currently there's no legal mechanism that recognises the rights of data sovereignty, Indigenous data sovereignty. Um, and, and getting that legal recognition is difficult. Hmm. Why? Why is that? What can you share with us? Well, this is where we need our lawyers. This is where we need, <laughs> okay. this is where we need yeah. Kitty Tahama. <laughs> Because you have to pass a law, right, or a bill or something. I mean, I mean, because I mean, you know, this kind of came up with, um, again, just into sort of telling us that you know Microsoft is coming and building a data center here, and there was some a little bit of quoted on that press release about, uh, about Maori data just staying in in Aotearoa, which is a great first step. But some people pointed out the real issue that well, they're actually bound by American laws, yeah. and 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 those are enforced upon them. And so technically America could extract indigenous data um, that's stored in Microsoft servers in New Zealand, right? And, and then it comes down to, I mean, you know, well, do, do we stand up to America or do we just sort of do what we've always been doing when America tells us to do stuff? And yeah, so that's, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, you hope that there are good people in these organizations and there are, you know, there are people trying to do good in these big corporates. I think the problem is that you know they they're a minority, and at the end of the day, uh, yeah, they they're not the ones leaving the ship. I guess no, they're they're in it for money, and I and I guess early on when we were thinking about how do you how do you actually operationalize data sovereignty when you're in the invidious position that you don't control most of your data, <laughs> you know what's the, what's the levers available to you? Uh, and we we're just talking to a friend who's a cybersecurity expert, and he said, well, normally the two mechanisms of a controller, the law. Um, you know, the regulatory sort of mechanisms. And then the other one is, um, you know, capitalism. So you own the data system. So, you know, do you have a Maori Facebook? It's like, well, no, we have neither of those. And so the <laughs> space in between, the space in between is often something like data governance. Um, or you develop your own ways, you know, like... Or encryption, right? I mean, there is... Yeah, or encryption as well. So increasingly these other tools that, you know, that we can utilise for our own purposes... Um, but there's a huge amount of kind of creativity and innovation and outside the box thinking that happens. Take your knee. Yeah. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about encryption a little bit because it's the handshake between providers exchanging some bytes. And what protocols are out there? What systems are out there? I don't want to go too deep into blockchain, but are there protocols, handshake kind of things that can be explored right now that would allow? Both sides, I guess, to um, both sides of the exchange to maintain their rangatiratanga and also help the the project proceed. I, I, yeah, my knowledge isn't very good in, in encryption. I mean, there's all sorts of um, you know open source tools out there. In fact, in fact, a lot of the best ones, encryption protocols, right, are actually open source, right? So the community can very clearly see. Um, and, and and see that it is what it is, and and actually make sure that it that it um, is 
um, resistant to, to hacks and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, I, you know, I think if just in, like something as simple as encrypting everything um, is, is, is one way to sort of, in, in a sense, maintain that sovereignty. Obviously you're going to have to control the keys and, and, and decide who, who gets the keys. And even the process of doing that is, is quite secure as well. You know, there's, there's ways that mitigate middle uh, men in the middle attacks and things like that. So, and then, then it really comes down to, does someone have enough processing power um, to, you know, to break your encryption? Currently, that's, that's not the case. Of course, once quantum computing comes around, it might change things a bit. Unless we also use quantum computing for encryption, then, then we're back to where we were. So, um, yeah, that's, that's about my extent. I, I guess what I would say, it does just, it also increases complexity and, and, and you know, that's more time designing, right? And ensuring that you're encrypting. I mean, it's one thing to encrypt a password, but then if we want to encrypt every single audio and video, I mean, you know, we transcode video into multiple different um, formats, right? So that it can be distributed properly. And so then we got to encrypt all of that, um, right? And so then you, it's you sort of increase in costs and things like that. So I guess, again, you sort of making that trade off. Well, I might decide to start encrypting, you know, maybe speaker cordero, but I'm not going to encrypt maybe our sort of contemporary cordero or something like mm-hmm. that. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't looked at that yet, but we probably will one day. <laughs> Well, tēnā kōrua, ngā mihi nui. What a very deep and enlightening session. Uh, we talked a lot about achieving a balance. Uh, we've looked a lot at indigenous uh, frameworks and protocols, and we've also covered the issue of inequity. And I'd just like to thank you both for offering your whakaro and expertise on our discussion today. Ngā mihi nui kōrua, thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to finish with a whakatauki. Kioni, got anything you'd like to share with our whānau? Yeah, okay. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's so much a, as a whakatauki, but in, in Hawaii we have a um, saying, o mauke e o kopono, and um, the translation of that is that the, the sovereignty of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. And... Um, this is something that one of our kings said uh, when there was a there was a time I think when our sovereignty was taken by a, maybe it was Britain or something, and it was given it was given back to our people, and and really what it emphasizes that sovereignty is really about right doing what's right, and, and I wanted I wanted to mention that because the state of Hawaii um, also uses this motto in its um, whatever thing that the state. State motto, whatever I don't know. They got all sorts of state things in America. So the state motto is but their translation of it is is something like the life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. So they actually they don't use the 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 real translation I think, which is really the sovereignty of the land. And so it just shows you how I, th- I thought that was a good example because we're talking about sovereignty, but it shows you how someone can colonize our attempts uh, for sovereignty and and to make them their own and totally forget that we're still occupied by the United States of America. And, you know, during this time when America and, and other Western countries are saying, hey, China, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing in Hong Kong. Yet with these Western countries totally forget that, that they've already done that for a lot of uh, uh, indigenous people out there. And it's still to this day is the case. Mm. And until they actually show the world an example of what it means to be uh, pono, China will probably, and other in other pa- uh, countries who come to power, will probably follow in the st- footsteps of the past colonizers. Mm. 
Tēnā koe Kioni. Tahu any whakaaro, whakatauki to share? Yeah, so um, so I think an appropriate one would be actually it's um, it's whakatauki. Well, it, it appears on the on the charter of um, or Te Manararunga, which is the Māori Data Sovereignty Network, and this actually came from Kirikōwhai Mikaire, who was one of the founding members, um, and is well known across the sort of Māori data scene. And she's um, yeah, from Te Arawa. And um, so, so it's he whenua ho, te ao rarunga, te ao rarunga, he whenua ho. And the um, sort of interpretation of that is um, data is a new world, a world of opportunity. So that ends on a positive note, eh? Hey? <laughs> kia ora, kia ora. Thank you, Tahu. O tēnā koutou, ngā mihi nui, thank you for tuning in to our episode at Te Putahi. We'll see you next time. Hei konara. Mm-hmm.